Hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of Charting Queer Health, a podcast at the intersection of queer culture, healthcare, and research. On behalf of Howard Brown Health in Chicago, I'm your host, Matt. I identify as a cis white gay man, and I'm a Chicago resident, and I also have the incredible opportunity to sit down with various experts from across our organization and across our community to learn from their expertise, amplify their stories and voices, and advance the conversation surrounding queer healthcare. Joining us today is Tim Wang. Tim, thank you for coming. Would you mind introducing yourself, your role here at Howard Brown, and your preferred pronouns? Sure, thanks for having me. Uh, my name is Tim Wang. I use he, him pronouns, and I'm the Director of Policy and Advocacy at Howard Brown. Director of Policy and Advocacy. Uh, for those that are listening at home that aren't really well acquainted with large healthcare organizations, especially ones like Howard Brown, what does that entail on a day-to-day basis? Sure, so it looks like a lot of different things. Um, I would say overall, the advocacy department, the work that we do is to ensure that, um, you know, progressive social policies that help improve health outcomes for LGBTQ plus people, as well as the other underserved communities that we provide care for, um, like move forward at the city, state, and also national level. Mm -hmm. Um, And so the ways we do that kind of like varies depending on, you know, what the specific bill or regulation call for. So sometimes it's writing comments to whatever government agency it is and telling them, you know, this is a good idea or this is a bad idea. Sometimes it's collecting stories from the community to talk about how a specific proposal might like, impact someone's health or their day-to-day living. Um, sometimes it's like writing scientific papers or, you know, policy briefs, analyzing the outcomes of specific policies on health outcomes. Um, so, yeah, I think those are some of the, the common forms that it can take. Um, and it's also just like a lot of talking to people Uh, building coalitions with other advocates, um, other community organizations uh, around Chicago, so that we're all kind of working together to advance, um, you know, equity and uh, social policies. Yeah, it makes sense. It it seems like a huge role to kind of, I don't know, I feel like you probably have to choose your battles a lot when it comes to this, because, I mean, Howard Brown is an incredible organization, and we offer a lot of services people need, but we're, we're only one part of the puzzle when it comes to enhancing somebody's life, and a lot of that has to do with, you know, the government or local ordinances and things, and so I'm sure it, you know, it's, it's a hard task to kind of go through and say, this is worth our effort in putting, you know, putting our thoughts out there on this and not that, and vice versa, uh, when, when we do speak out about a piece of policy or something that we think would make a difference for our patients, historically, has it worked? Does it fall out of fears? How, do, how does, you know, local government respond to that? Yeah, I mean, I think that one thing that's really good is that I think Howard Brown has a lot of, like, name recognition. Um, so we are known as an LGBTQ plus affirming healthcare provider. And so I think that carries a lot of weight. So anything having to do with LGBTQ plus health or LGBTQ plus rights, um, I think a lot of people, especially in Illinois, kind of go to Howard Brown to Mm. see what our opinion is um, and also to hear from us like how it might impact our patients. Um, And then the other half of that is that we're a healthcare provider. Um, So I think we have a lot of expertise naturally um, on providing care, uh, whether that be primary care, behavioral health care, dentistry, Uh, all the social services that we provide. Um, There's a lot of advocacy that has to go into that as well in terms of like making sure that, you know, HIV programs are funded adequately, for example, or, you know, that federally qualified health centers um, have all the infrastructure in place that they need to be successful. Um, So I think that's another place where people just naturally turn to Howard Brown to see what we have to say because we are an FQHC um, and we're a provider of healthcare. So we have expertise in those areas. And then kind of in... In response to what you said earlier about like having to like pick our battles, um, I, I think that is something that is 
you know, difficult naturally because I think there are so many things that we all care about. Um, but I think the good thing about doing advocacy work is that you are never like doing it alone. Um, so there are so many great advocacy organizations, um, both across the country, but also right here in Chicago that are doing amazing work in terms of, you know, racial justice, in terms of disability advocacy, in terms of, um, you know, climate advocacy. So I think it's about finding ways to work in coalition and in solidarity with those other organizations so we can help them uplift their messages and they can also help us like uplift our messages about healthcare access and LGBTQ plus rights. Right, it's building those bridges and kind of coming together as a community, even though something might not necessarily be in our wheelhouse, it's still advantageous for us to kind of speak up about it. So that makes sense. I, I think your position is interesting to me because uh, as uh, director for policy and advocacy, you are kind of the liaison when uh, you know other organizations or lawmakers or whatever want to know our position. You and you alone are the one that like speaks up and offers where we are on stuff if we don't have it published on a website or something. When you're kind of aggregating that information or kind of deciding what a stance is, how do how do you go about that? Of like, let's say somebody reached out about you know alternative insemination. How do we decide like? what specific language we're using or how we're putting our message out there. Is it a collaborative process or? Yeah, absolutely. It's a collaborative process. And um, I myself, I'm not like a provider. I'm not a doctor or anything like that. Don't right. have that degree. Um, so I think with a lot of stuff, like you mentioned the alternative insemination program, mm -hmm. um, there was some recent advocacy around that to kind of expand insurance coverage so that that's covered for LGBTQ plus people in Illinois. Um, so that process was very collaborative between you know myself and my team as well as the alternative insemination program here at Howard Brown. So I can better learn from them like what the actual issues were. Um, so I heard from them, you know, all these workarounds that they used to have to do for to get insurance coverage because of the old definition of infertility, which was, you know, very heteronormative, didn't work for a lot of LGBTQ folks. Um, and so they helped me to like identify that that was an issue. Um, and then that kind of, I remembered that the next time I was talking to an elected official and she was, you know, telling me about this new insurance bill that she wanted to lead. Um, and so that's kind of um, an example of how I might reach out to a provider or a case manager or a patient navigator who would better know from firsthand experience maybe what the issues are. And then I kind of just help to translate that into like a proposed policy or talk about that issue with legislators. Right, you're kind of the synthesis of, of all the knowledge and expertise we have here at Herbert Brown, and then right. you kind of push it I'm like the, the telephone. Right, yeah, 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 you're passing along the message. So that makes sense. Um, in the past, what does the legacy of advocacy here at Howard Brown look like? I know for people listening, we kind of got our roots in the HIV epidemic, um, but going forward since then, what, you know, what can we kind of say that we've influenced when it comes to policy? Yeah, I mean, I think there's been a lot, like I said before, um, Howard Brown is known as an LGBTQ plus um, federally qualified health center. So certainly there's a strong legacy, strong history of advocacy in advancing LGBTQ plus affirming healthcare, definitely. Um, and so I started at Howard Brown about a year and a half ago. And before that, I was at Fenway Health, which is another federally qualified health center that specializes in LGBTQ plus health. Um, and so I had already known about Howard Brown just from doing that work somewhere else. So like, mm -hmm. there really aren't that many LGBTQ um, FQHCs, that's a lot of letters, um, <laughs> around the country. Um, so we all kind of work together to advance a lot of um, what you might know as like, recent healthcare developments for LGBTQ plus people. Um, for example, um, like section 1557 of the Affordable Care Act, 
Um, it's basically just the, the civil rights provision mm -hmm. of the Affordable Care Act. Okay. Um, and under the Obama administration, with help from a lot of advocates, including Howard Brown, um, they issued a final rule saying that it applied to um, LGBTQ plus folks. So you can't be discriminated against in healthcare for your sexual orientation or gender identity. Mm -hmm. And that's huge, yeah. Yeah. Um, so that's something that like, you know, we've been involved in along with, you know, other fairly qualified health centers. Um, and then kind of in that same sort of vein, anything related to like federally qualified health centers, generally um, funding for the, the, for the um, like public health safety net or the HIV care safety net. Mm. Um, like you mentioned that we're, we're huge in HIV care. So I think that's something that we do every year is kind of advocate gotcha. for those funding allotments uh, to make sure that you know, that safety net is adequately funded and that we're able to provide the care that we know people rely on. Right. Uh, in my talks with uh, Kathy Kretikos, who's a provider here at Howard Brown, who has a long history dealing with HIV, um, she said there, there's a lot of resources out there for people who might not maybe move for treatment if they um, are living with HIV, but it's just a matter of like, getting them linked to care. And I think Howard Brown also continues to ensure that, that those resources are there because for a lot of you know uh, lawmakers who may not know about queer issues or anything, it, once HIV is out of the public eye, it might, you know, mm -hmm. we don't need funding around this anymore. That was right. the 80s, whatever. So it's kind of our, our duty to, to speak up and say, no, this is still an ongoing issue and these resources still need to be there oh, um, in the case of HIV and I'm sure a lot of other things as well. Yeah, I mean, I think that's like kind of, fundamental to like the modern LGBTQ plus um, like civil rights movement is you look at like HIV advocacy and how it's evolved. Um, you know, like in the beginning of the epidemic, like the government wouldn't even like talk about HIV like at all, let alone allocate any sort of funding to help it um, help stop the epidemic from really kind of ravaging queer communities. Mm -hmm. um, and now we've kind of evolved to a point where we literally have a like government wide initiative to end the HIV epidemic. Um, so I think there's a lot of progress that was made in that way, but it took a lot of advocacy, grassroots community advocacy from the people that were affected, really speaking up and saying like, this is an issue and you can't ignore it. Um, and so I think, yeah, looking back at like the history of HIV advocacy and how it's grown, um, is a really strong kind of mirror for like modern LGBTQ plus advocacy. That's an excellent point. That's an excellent point. I wanted to kind of zoom in a little bit about a few policy things um, that are impacting our organization specifically, and then also um, the nation. So something I've heard recently um, in just talks around the office is the concept of something called 340B funding. Yeah. Um, and, and as a content creator here, I'm kind of diving into that. Later today, can you kind of expand on what 340B is and why it's important to us here at Howard Run? Sure. Um, so 340B is a federal program um, and essentially, it is a source of funding for um, federally qualified health centers, other nonprofit healthcare organizations um, that is really, really vital. Um, so as a federally qualified health center, um, Howard Brown is tasked with uh, providing care for anyone who walks through our doors. Um, so that's whether or not they can afford the service, whether or not they have insurance. Um, so one of the ways that the federal government helps to ensure that health centers that provide care for everyone um, are able to sustain themselves financially um, is by providing, you know, sources of funding like 340B. Um, 340B is also a really helpful program in terms of being able to uh, provide discounted uh, medication and treatment. Um, we know that we have a large patient population um, that uses HIV medication, and that's something that you have to take, you know, for the rest of your life, and mm -hmm. it's also quite expensive. 
Um, so in that sort of way, the 340B program and, and the discounts that it offers for medication has also been a lifesaver for a lot of our patients. Um, and then some of those kinds of savings that we're able to generate because of the 340B program, we are able to reinvest in expanding our services, um, creating new programs for patients. Um, and this is especially important for a lot of programs that we provide that are you know, perhaps underfunded or not really funded by any sort of like government agency. Mm -hmm. So I'm thinking a lot about like um, behavioral health, especially like LGBTQ plus affirming behavioral health. Yeah. Um, there's such huge funding needs around that that really aren't you know, necessarily well met by like government grants or things like that. Um, and so that's an area where we might patch in some like 340B savings, for, for instance. Um, but, you know, as of late, um, there have been a lot of attacks on the program, unfortunately, that kind of chip away at those savings that we're able to generate. Um, and in that way, that really jeopardizes a lot of the programs and services that we offer that rely on 340B. Um, and so we want to make sure that the program, you know, is upheld, it, it stays strong. Um, and that we're able to retain the savings that we're supposed to have from that program so that we can provide care for our patients. Gotcha. Okay. So it, it's a, a money saver, so to speak. Right. Uh, and that it allows us to kind of take the money that we would um, receive from the government and put it towards other services? Yeah. I mean, essentially, yes. Uh, what it really is... You're talking to a very like, <laughs> a big layman here. Like, I understand very little about yeah. this. So yeah, I and mean, it's also, like, super complex. Right. Um, and, yeah, but... I'm, I'm trying to ask you to, like, <laughs> distill these huge bills into, like, a 30-second sound. Yeah, so yeah. Um, me, but... So, generally, uh, basically what it is is that um, 340B covered entities... Um, so that includes federally qualified health centers. Mm -hmm. We are eligible to buy medications at a very discounted rate. Okay. Um, and so, you know. So basically it's like we were like a, a suburban mom buying from the grocery store with a coupon. Yes. And, the and then all those, you know, like right. at the end of the receipt, it says you saved X amount right. of dollars with your coupons. That's, that's money, the money that we, we get can to use then for... reinvest into care. Right. Okay. I can see that's, that's the, the framework yeah. I need being a <laughs> Midwest suburban boy myself. So that makes sense. Okay. So, so for the average, uh, either patient of Howard Brown or citizen in Chicago, how do we ensure that 340B stays intact? Is that just a process of contacting our lawmakers or? Absolutely. Um, I think right now, something that's really important is kind of elevating the 340B program in general, like kind of doing this explanation of what it is. Yeah. I think a lot of patients may not necessarily know that the programs or care that they get is really dependent on this program. Um, and so it never hurts to contact your elected officials, both at the state level and at the federal level, uh, and tell them that the 340B program is incredibly important to the mm -hmm. healthcare that you receive. Um, and that you need that program to stay intact so that you can continue, you know, seeing your doctors, getting the care that you need. Um, any, anytime that you can like contact your elected official and talk about 340B, I think it's great. <laughs> awesome. Okay. Good to know. Yeah. That, yeah. Cause that's, that's, what's so intriguing to me about policy and advocacy is it all seems very like high level. Uh, and, and for that reason, I think a lot of people can't engage with it because mm -hmm. they think it's, you know, hard to understand, but it's, it really does impact each of us in a, in a very tangible way when it comes down to it. Um, I'm going to go pick up my prep later today from Walgreens. Uh, and if I wasn't insured, like I could, I know that I would still be able to pick it up and that would be in jeopardy without 340B. So it's that kind of like bottom line, this is what it impacts um, that I think is important for us to think about. Mm -hmm. So so 340B is an example of policy that does good for us. Um, a lot of things we've seen in the news recently um, are examples of how policy can uh, go bad, which is, uh, the quote-unquote don't say gay bill in Florida, 
um, in the anti-trans um, uh, legislation in Texas when it comes to mandating parents or schools to out their kids to their parents and and, and all sorts of stuff. Um, I don't want to get too bogged down into the details of those bills, but can you kind of run through um, what sticks out to Howard Brown as, as important about those bills and important sure. to speak about? Yeah, so I'll just kind of speak generally um, to, I think, this moment in, mm-hmm. in American history where you mentioned like the actions in Texas, the bill in Florida, but those are both, um, I think, really media-worthy examples of something that's happening all across the country. Um, I think last year has been um, record-breaking in terms of the number of anti-LGBTQ plus bills that states have introduced, um, and especially anti-trans bills. Um, so I think we're seeing a lot of bills that are similar to the actions in Texas that kind of limit access to gender-affirming care for trans youth. We're seeing a lot of bills about preventing trans youth from participating in sports. I think one was just signed in Iowa. Mm. Um, and then we're also seeing... Uh, I think, and I think we'll be seeing more of kind of bills that are like Florida, um, this kind of don't say gay um, kind of bill, which I think really hinges on something that more and more people are call, like calling um, like parental rights or parents' rights. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I think we see that a lot with um, like comprehensive sex ed, for example. Um, people don't want their kids learning about LGBTQ plus identities in sex ed or like anything else that you would learn in sex ed. People use that a lot for critical race theory, like we don't want our kids learning about that for whatever reason. Um, so I think that's kind of like um, maybe the next frontier of like how this kind of evolves. Part of it, yeah, that larger discussion. Because I know that was, uh, my boyfriend's a big legal nerd, and I know that was a Supreme Court case uh, way back when of like, mm-hmm. it, when a child that's underage is at school, does the school have kind of legal authority to 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 teach whatever I think it was a case about a cheerleader or something. I don't know. But, <laughs> so I, I, he's going to be mad at me for not remembering the details because he brought it up so many times. But um, yeah, I think that's a great example of like all of these cases, while they are extremely newsworthy, also all hinge on that kind of um, what rights does the school have in relation to the parents and kind right. of what do we as a society value? So. Yeah. And I think that one reason that we keep seeing, I think we see a lot of cycles of anti-LGBTQ plus legislation Um like, if you remember a couple of years ago, like, North Carolina had that, um, like, quote-unquote bathroom bill. Oh, yeah. Um, yep. And there was, North Carolina was one of them. There were a ton of other states as well. Um, and then uh, they received a bunch of backlash for it. They eventually repealed that law. Um, and then, of course, a couple of years before that, there was, you know, DOMA and all the same-sex mm-hmm. marriage laws. So I think that we see, like, this recurring cycle of anti-LGBTQ legislation, like, pop up at moments throughout history. And I think... One reason why we see it is that for a certain voter base, it's like a really critical issue. So I think a lot of politicians kind of use that to invigorate their voter bases. Mm -hmm. Um, And they don't really care about the negative consequences that those bills have for LGBTQ people. Um, Because they know it's just a flashpoint. It'll get a reaction. Right, exactly. I I think like the the talk that it generates um, is something that's helpful for them. And like, like I said, like some people this is a critical voter issue for them. So they like to hear it like reiterated. Um, And so I think one thing that's really important for us to do is to really kind of stand strong in the face of any sort of anti-LGBTQ plus legislation. I think one thing that everyone can do is if you're in a state where any of this legislation is being introduced or is advancing, that you have to kind of contact your elected official and tell them that 
you know, I don't support this anti-LGBTQ plus bill and I don't support any future anti-LGBTQ plus bills. Um, like this is not an issue. Um, it's it's uh, something that you, like the majority of Americans, no matter what your political party is now at this point in, in 2022, support non-discrimination for LGBTQ plus people. So this mm. is not something that you should keep bringing up. Like you should be focusing on any of the number of like critical pressing issues. You've got bigger fish to fry. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Interesting. I, yeah, because that's, that's a question I had too of like in, especially I've noticed since moving to Chicago, these bills are a lot, I don't know if easier to forget about as the word because they're not, but like I I moved from Southwest Michigan, which is way more conservative than Chicago. And so when you're Mm -hmm. in Chicago, it's very easy to kind of like, stay in this bubble of like a, a, a big city and sure. I wouldn't have to worry about this ever impacting anyone I know because if I, you know, if I live here, this won't ever be an issue because it's mm-hmm. so blue, so to speak, not to turn it partisan. But um, like, what's what's the impetus for people that do live in the city to kind of use our voice to, to help out states that are struggling with this, even though we may never have that ourselves? Right. Yeah, so I think the first thing that I would say about that is that um, I think you're right. We're, we're lucky to live in an area that has passed a lot of pro-LGBTQ um, legislation and policies. But I think we also know that like politics changes really fast. Um, and so it's not necessarily the case that this will never happen in like a, a more quote unquote like blue area. Mm-hmm. So that's just something to kind of know. Um, but I think the bigger issue is that even if we aren't impacted by these bills wherever you live, I think, um, especially for a lot of the like trans and non-binary community um, that lives in Illinois or lives in Chicago, they're still impacted mm. by this news, like constantly hearing your humanity like questioned and debated in the news um, and like often like demonized. Like I think um, in Texas, them calling like gender affirming care child abuse, mm. like that's like really difficult to, to keep hearing um, and it also makes you worried for, you know, your friends who do live in Texas, for instance. Um, so I think even if you're in a state that isn't advancing any of these bills, I think for a lot of LGBTQ plus people in those states, um, it can still take a really big like mental health toll um, hearing about all this legislation. Um, and I think that's also why it's important for us to kind of stand up for LGBTQ plus people all across the country. That's excellently put. I think, the sh- yeah, the shockwaves kind of ripple out past, you know, past the state itself and kind of impact ways impact people in ways that we didn't probably think about. So that, mm-hmm. that's an excellent point. I think when, because I would consider myself somebody who's pretty, I mean, working for Howard Brown now, especially who is, is pretty aware of, you know, current legislation and, you know, different um, policy that might affect me or affect people that I love. Um, but I've unfortunately never reached out to a, a senator or, you know, what have you to kind of advocate for, for uh, the things I know that my community needs. Mm-hmm. We we have said like, reach out, which is very easy. Are there, you know, I guess this podcast is one way of like raising the conversations surrounding these bills, but like what else, wh- what else can we do? Cause sometimes leaving, you know, 1800 phone messages on your <laughs> local representatives, you know, yeah. voicemail might not feel like Absolutely. So um, and I will say, I was just on a call this morning um, with people who worked at an elected official's office, and they said um, that leaving the phone messages does help. It so does. that okay. is, it's just like kind of the numbers of, yeah. of uh, Bill, like in support. But I think so one way that we can definitely um, like how to contact your elected officials, 
Uh, there are a number of different like online registries. Um, and if you go onto like the Howard Brown website, um, our blog page, there are several blogs that are tagged like advocacy. And within those, you'll probably have, you might have to click around a couple times, but you'll find like links um, where you just put in your address and it'll give you um, your like federal elected officials and your state elected officials and your city elected officials, as well as contact information. Um, so that's one really easy way to get the phone number and email of the people that represent you. Um, and I will say that like everything that we have talked about in terms of what advocacy work entails at Howard Brown is something that literally anyone can do. Um, like all community members can kind of, you know, look up, you know, legislation that's going on and like talk to their elected officials about it. Um, like we said, like call, like they can even, they can do the public comments. The letters are open to everyone, not just organizations. Um, so I think one aspect of my job here is to try and provide as much information as possible so that anyone who finds that information will know what they're supposed to do. Um, so I think you can kind of stay in tune with a lot of the work that's going on at Howard Brown in terms of advocacy by looking at the blog, like I said, but we also do like email action alerts. Also like social media is a good way to kind of click through and find all those links as well. Um, and I think it is important for just the average community member uh, to talk to their elected officials because I will say that if your job title includes the word advocacy in it, sometimes that makes elected officials kind of take what you say a little bit less because you know they're like, oh, he's paid to say that or like, he's his paid job to, to do push this. this agenda. Exactly. Yeah. But if they hear it from their constituents or the people that literally determine if they get the job or not, the people that vote for them, um, that holds a lot of weight. Yeah, I think that's an ongoing trend we've been having across all of these episodes of like educating yourself and, and kind of taking all the resources at your disposal is just the best way, not only to advocate for your own health, but like we're talking about here to advocate for the health of, in some cases, millions of people across the nation. So mm -hmm. um, I love that uh, Howard Brown is doing the ongoing work to kind of make this information available to everybody because it's not like we have a special earpiece to to policy and, and, and legislators and everything. We know... I mean, all of the information that we know is available to everybody and, you know, we, you know, everybody can educate themselves and join their voice alongside Howard Browns. Right. Um, so I think that's a, I think that's a beautiful thing. So I always kind of liked to round things out on a large question here. Um, sometimes thinking about uh, politics and policy and, and legislation is a little discouraging because, mm -hmm. uh, especially recently, we haven't seen um, an example of what a functioning government uh, can do <laughs> yeah. necessarily. Mm -hmm. um, are you optimistic for the, the future of, of LGBTQ plus healthcare and how it relates to government at all? Um, or is, is you think there's a lot more work to do? Or is it both? I think it's both. Um, so I will say having worked in policy, um, you know, throughout the last several presidential administrations, I think it's um, there's like a stark difference mm. um, in terms of definitely what you're saying, like in terms of like optimism, like there's just such a difference in terms of an administration that is willing to work with you on LGBTQ issues and an administration that you have to constantly fight um, not to lose things that you had previously gained. Um, so I think from that kind of standpoint, I do feel, you know, more optimistic, at least talking nationally right now, mm -hmm. um, that, you know, we have an administration that is open and willing to work with LGBTQ community organizations, open to saying that LGBTQ rights are a major issue for them. Um, and that's something that's good because they publicly state that and then we can hold them accountable to what they say. 
Um, you know, we can point to, you know, the statement that was just released by the Biden administration about how they're going to protect trans kids across the country. Um, if there's not enough action that's being taken and we continue to see a lot of this anti-trans legislation pop up, you know, we can refer to that statement and say, you know, you remember when you say that, you know, right. we need to see more action on that. Um, and so that's something uh, that I think is, does give a little bit of optimism that they're open to working and they have collaborated with us. Um, we've been lucky enough to be able to, alongside other LGBTQ health centers to work with and be in meetings with uh, Rachel Levine, who is the Assistant Secretary of Health and uh, Oakland Trans herself. Um, so I think that in that aspect, it's been a really great kind of new collaboration that we haven't been able to do um, for the last several years. Mm -hmm. um, but your other point about there still need to be, like there's still a lot of work to do. Like clearly there's still a lot of work to do. Um, I think we have made so much progress, but then you also remember that, you know, we still haven't passed the Equality Act nationally, which would um, add sexual orientation and gender identity as protected classes under civil rights legislation. So there are still states in the country um, where, you know, there aren't any LGBTQ non-discrimination protections um, in, in 2022. Yeah, I saw, so, I saw um, there was a push to kind of edit the the flag to only include in, in a like graphic kind of uh, yeah demonstrate demonstrative way of like remove the stars on the flag of the states that don't mm -hmm. uh, ratify that bill. So it's it's yeah you're right it is very much an ongoing process to kind of uh, secure the rights and protections that queer people deserve around the country. So that's an excellent take on it. I and again, that's kind of a trend that's popped up in every episode that I talk about of every issue, whether it's, you know, uh, HIV, AIDS, or COVID, or right. uh, mental health care, or what, any, any mm -hmm. kind of service that we offer here at Hard Round. It's always like, we've come a long way, and we're inspired by the progress we've made in treating this issue, but there's always so much work to do. So yes, um, now is not the time to let up on the gas pedal, so to speak, Absolutely. Now, that, now that we have Biden in office. Mm -hmm. Um Ooh, I'm trying to this like I said before this is such a huge topic and I'm trying to impact think think through in my mind of like all the things we talked about and I'm trying to make sure that we didn't miss anything because there are a lot of things ongoing that Howard Brown is working with are there any um, bills or pieces of legislation that I didn't talk about that you want to give a shout out um, especially for Chicago local people that we need to we need to know about yeah absolutely so I think one thing that uh, we can all be on the lookout for is the Getting to Zero Omnibus Funding Bill. Um, so if you don't know, the Getting to Zero Coalition in Illinois is a group of HIV service organizations, healthcare providers, and also government agencies. And we're all working together to ensure that we can end the HIV epidemic by 2030. Um, and so, of course, in order to do that, um, we need to be able to address a lot of the disparities that we've seen in HIV care. I'm sure you've talked about it also, mm -hmm. um, but like the disparities we see in PrEP uptake, especially racial disparities um, in health outcomes, um, and then also addressing a lot of those kind of structural barriers. So the social determinants of health, um, for example, we know that like housing is huge for being able to maintain HIV treatment. Like if you don't have a place to sleep at night, it's really difficult to adhere to, you know, the HIV medications that you need to take every day. Oh, absolutely. We talked with um, Tokes for Broadway Youth Center, and that's a huge thing with um, housing insecure youth. It's like, if they don't have somewhere to lay their head at night, they're not going to worry about what kind of medications exactly. they're taking or their health. So. Right. Yeah. It's like that, that hierarchy of needs or whatever. Oh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> that's, that's hierarchy of <laughs> that's needs. That's it. Like yes. Yeah, exactly. Um, 
And so this bill, um, the Getting to Zero Omnibus Funding Bill, um, it would allocate $15 million um, in various different strategies. One of them, the biggest part of it is actually for housing. I think it's 10 million of the 15 million oh, is wow. towards housing um, to improve affordable housing options for people living with HIV. Um, but also other things like um, funding Black and Latinx-led organizations um, to kind of do the work within their own communities because mm -hmm. they are the trusted voices. Um, increasing PrEP uptake, especially among Black and Latinx communities and trans communities. Um, and so th it's a really great bill and it's desperately needed funding um, to be able to actually make meaningful progress in ending the HIV epidemic. Um, so that's something to be on the lookout for this legislative session. And that was the omnibus getting to zero. Yes, the GTZ, getting to zero omnibus bill. Okay. Um, so I think their website is gtzil.org, perhaps, GTZ okay. Illinois. Um, but if they Google omnibus, if you if zero, you Google yeah. getting to zero Illinois, cool. you'll get there. <laughs> cool. Yeah, I would say I'm just adding to my mental list of like what I need, uh, you know, on my notes app when I call my uh, legislative representative. And say, yeah. Hey, I need this bill and this bill yeah. and this bill. Make it a grocery list here. Yeah, so. absolutely. Awesome. Um, aside from that, anything else that we need to be aware of in the short term? Um, well, I think I'll, I'll also just kind of do a plug for um, there's a bill regarding a legal name change. Um, and right now, Illinois actually has one of the most restrictive name change laws um, for people with felonies. Um, so there's a really long waiting period after the end of your sentence that you have to wait until you can actually file for a name change. Um, it's also, the process is expensive. It's really confusing. Um, lots of paperwork to fill out. Um, and also name changes are just entirely banned for a couple different classes of felonies. Um, and like I said, that's a lot more restrictive than most or most other states in the country. Yeah. Um, I was doing some research because yeah. uh, I made a TikTok about it. And I think there was something like you have to have, you have to publish it in a newspaper for three yeah. consecutive weeks that you're changing your and name. And that's like what, that tells you how old that legislation is. Right. That they're like, you need to publish this in a newspaper for like three weeks. And also that's expensive. Right. Um, it's just So wild. it's just like, why? Like why? Yeah. Um, and so we know that this disproportionately impacts trans folks. Um, who are a community that both often looks for legal name change and are also disproportionately impacted by the criminal justice system because of you know systemic discrimination in our society. Mm -hmm. um, so I think this this bill really, or, or the name change uh, laws in Illinois really disproportionately harm transgender people. Um, and so this bill is aiming to kind of uh, change our laws so that like we remove the unnecessary waiting periods. Um, we make name change possible for people who it wasn't possible for before. Um, and then we also put in place a lot of procedural changes that kind of make the entire process easier to understand, less expensive. Um, for the, the newspaper thing, there are waivers to kind of get around having to publish this in a newspaper, especially if it would be a safety concern, like outing yourself in the oh, newspaper. Yeah. Um, and, so, and so that's another bill. Um, the name change modernization uh, that's being led uh, by a lot of our colleagues who do fantastic work in Chicago. Um, so I'll just give a plug for that too, to kind of awesome. uplift that with your legislators. So right there, we have three bills that are important that impact the queer community in tangible ways. Uh, the 340B funding bill, the omnibus getting to zero bill, and the name change, name, excuse me, name change legislation. Uh, here in Illinois. So uh, if you are local to the area, those are three bills to check out to voice your support for, to contact your elected, elected representative about um, in 
I, I appreciate that because we, like I said before, it's, it's easy to see headlines and kind of get caught up in like, I don't know what this other state's legislation means for me, but I'm worried. Um, these are three bills that we can mm -hmm. reach out to, even if you're a Chicago resident, to ensure that we have the resources we need going forward for the queer community. So um, we're pretty much at the end of our time. Is there anything else that we didn't touch on? I, I, it's the ongoing joke at the end of all my podcasts that <laughs> I say that like, we're going to have to have you back. But that's truly because every guest I've had, the topic is... Uh, so huge and the amount of knowledge that each guest has is also so huge that we could talk about this for a while and there's there's more bills and more stuff coming so yes. um, with that in mind what uh, anything that we didn't miss what else what else do we need to quickly plug at the end here um, I, I think anything. I think we got everything um, well I think in terms of you know parting words I think that um, you know, I really enjoy doing advocacy work at Howard Brown um, on behalf of the organization and on behalf of our patients. But like I said, like the modern like LGBTQ plus civil rights movement is so based in community grassroots advocacy. Um, so it is so important just to kind of get your own voice heard, uh, plug in any way that you can to, to kind of learn about what's going on and figure out what the easiest way to contact your elected officials is. Um, but telling your stories and telling why things impact you is often, um, you know, a lot more impactful than anything that I do in my you know, professional capacity. So would definitely encourage everyone to kind of um, just exercise their voice. And, you know, your elected official, um, your, your, your elected official's hmm. boss, you know, um, That's you, true. you determine That's if true. they got the job or not. Uh, you'll determine if they continue to have that job. So um, you have a lot of impact. That's an excellent point. That's an excellent reminder. Tim, thank you so much uh, for spending time with us. Like I said, we just scratched the surface and I can't wait to, wait to talk more. Um, but in the meantime, Tim, thank you so much for your time. Thank you. All right, everybody, that has been our episode with Tim Wang, Director of Policy and Advocacy here at Howard Brown. If you're curious about any of the things we talked about in the episode, you can go to www.howardbrown.org. Thanks for listening.